0: Chapter 18. We've been studying the book of Acts now and watching Paul as he is on his missionary trips and how he first established certain churches throughout Jerusalem, throughout Europe and Greece and Asia. And as he's been going along, he started these churches and those churches began to grow, began to bloom. And then he would return home to Jerusalem and then decide to go back, back to those churches that he started years before to visit the believers for discipleship, for fellowship, to continue to train them. Paul saw that he had many sons and daughters in the Lord spiritually, and this compelled him to return to them, to continue to love on them, to train them up in the ways of the Lord. And one of these cities that we're going to read about was Corinth, there in Greece. Corinth was surrounded by a lot of natural springs and fertile lands and plains. And it was a very important city to the Greeks, to the Hellenists, and to the Romans. It was in the center of this line of trade. There was a a naval fleet there by Rome. And throughout history, Corinth was known for places of battle. And it would be in the limelight of the ancient world throughout history. I got to actually visit Corinth last year in the, in the spring. And we I've actually been there twice now that I think about it. Um, and it's about a, a two-hour drive from Athens, or less than that, actually. So in Athens and Greece, you could actually get on a bus and head over to Corinth. And there, from the church in Corinth, you could see the plains and it leads to this giant mountaintop, this plateau, where there's this temple on top of a hill where the prostitute women would come down and and seduce the men as part of a religious practice. You see, Corinth was a, a city known for its immorality. It was... Sort of like a a a Las Vegas of their time. Back then, it it was known that if somebody was called a a Corinthian, it was almost a a slur against them of someone who was immoral. And yet, Paul went there to start a church, and he would, as we're going to read today, plant one of these. Very strong churches, but very also immature churches at this time. He would later go on to, to write first and second Corinthians these letters to the church in Corinth because they were so surrounded by immorality. So let's begin now with Acts chapter 18 verse 1. It says, After these things. Whenever it says after these things, you can kind of go back and look at the chapter ahead and say, what, what things? And it's referring to when Paul was preaching there on Mars Hill to the Greeks. So after Paul was preaching to the Greeks in Mars Hill, he then departed from Athens and went to Corinth, the Bible says. Verse 2, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and he came to them. In verse 2, we have the introduction of this power couple. This power couple was known as Aquila and Priscilla. They were mentioned six times in scripture together, and we see them as companions of Paul. Who are used mightily by God? They were tent makers, like Paul himself, who was also a tent maker. And they would later go on to disciple Apollo. We're going to read about that today. But I-, I love how Paul met these this couple, and they found this this companionship between Paul and them too. And these. Man and this woman, this husband and wife, were used powerfully by God. And I look at the marriage that God instituted. A husband and a wife, full of the Holy Spirit, doing the work of the Lord, discipling, converting, teaching and and preaching. And it's something that I I aspire to. We notice how in verse 2 that Priscilla and Aquila, they had to leave Rome. They had to depart from Rome, because the emperor forced them to. It was a a, a law that he instituted in 49 A.D. Now, according to a, a historian, not a Christian historian, but to according to Suetonius, he wrote in his history books that Emperor Claudius expelled from Rome all Jews who followed. Crestus, and that would be Christ. And this is an interesting move because the emperor had previously made Jews feel welcomed in that territory. But it is believed that after much of the dispute between the Jews, the devout religious Pharisees, and the Christians, that the emperor would go on to exile all the Jews because he didn't want anything to do With being related to riots, he didn't want Caesar to come down on him for not taking care of the riots that would be going on. So this emperor, in order to stay away from riots, said, okay, you know what, we're just going to eliminate all the Jews in this territory, whether they're Christian or following the Judaism religion or not. So under that order, Priscilla and Aquila had had to flee. And I recognize that they had recently come from Italy and, from, and they had to depart from Rome. And what I'm seeing here is how the Bible has all these places that we could still go see to this day. And it's the reality that this text in front of us has history in it. It's reliable. In verse 3, So because he was of the same trade, He stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Ah, see, this is what I love. They were tradesmen. You see, they were, because they had jobs, they were able to provide for their family needs and for themselves so that they didn't have to depend on the church to support them. Paul would later go on to write, that he would say, look, I, I am a representative of you guys. That uh, I, I didn't ask the church for money to provide for me. I got a job and I provided for myself so that where I could go, I would be blameless. And Paul would also go on to write that the laborer is worthy of his wages and that you shouldn't muzzle the animal as it treads the grain. As a reminder that we should, when there is a pastor in that place, in that position, when God calls him to provide for him. But Paul himself held himself to a higher standard. He said, You know what? I don't I want to be blameless of people even thinking I would take the money from the church. So I'm gonna start my own tent-making ministry. And that's us. Men and women who who serve in ministry, who are are not full time in ministry. We have our tent making ministry. For me, it's air conditioning. And what I use that for, I call it a ministry. It's my air conditioning ministry, my tent making ministry, where I go and I, I work with men and, and women in the world, and I'm a, a representative of Christ to them. I try to be. I try to tell people the truth with love and grace. And I try to be honorable to God at my post. And I see that as an opportunity for me to be able to minister to the world. You see, if I was only in the church, then I would only be able to minister to the church. But because I have a secular job, God opens doors for me to be able to minister to those who are lost and the unsaved. So Paul, with his companions, they were all tent makers. In verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And in this we see as Paul always going to the synagogue first, the Jews first, because they were given the oracles of God. He wanted to give them the full context of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's trying to disciple and fellowship with them. It's super important that we have fellowship, that we have discipleship in our lives. We see Paul doing this every Sabbath. I recently started a podcast when COVID started. And one of the main reasons I started the podcast was because I needed more fellowship in my life. And when we were all in quarantine and subject to not having church or or fellowship in person. I reached out to a friend of mine so we can just talk, talk about God. And that turned into us inviting some of our other friends and we've been doing these interviews. But through it, what we've seen is that God has been teaching us through the lives of other men and women of how God is so powerful, so real, And we love this. So find that discipleship, that fellowship. Strive for it. No man, no woman is an island. We can't do it by ourselves. We need people to give us truth. Sometimes we get lost in our minds and in our thoughts of a certain viewpoint or something going on in our life. But if we have that brother, that sister in the Lord alongside of us, that we could bring this topic up, they'll point us and say, hey, hold on. You're not looking at this in the lens of God's view. You need to correct yourself. So Paul did this weekly. And then in verse five, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ if you remember Silas and Timothy, they were left to disciple those in Macedonia. And here Paul is now having them come to return to him. He left them there to allow them to grow, to be leaders. And now they come back to Paul. And here it says Paul is pressed, he's compelled by the Spirit to testify of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. You see, Paul is heartbroken by these Jews who were opposing the gospel. We read that in verse 6. It says, But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. You see, Paul here He has given the truth to people. In Ezekiel chapter 33, the Lord warns, he warns Ezekiel that he must tell people of the truth of the gospel of God. And that if the watchman that would be Ezekiel would not do so, that his blood, the blood of the people would be on his own hands. But if Ezekiel was to go out and share the truth with people and they rejected the truth that God was the one true God, then their blood would be upon their own heads. So me as a man who stands before you to teach you the truth of the word, I have a a standard to hold that I must give you guys the truth of the gospel because there are souls at stake here. I have to warn you that when you reject Christ in your life, the option is, is hell, separation from God eternally. But I also encourage you guys in the hope of Jesus Christ living in us, through us, to an eternal kingdom So Paul was compelled to do this. It says in verse 7, And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now, Justice, this man was a Gentile. And some believe that this was actually Titus, who later on Paul would write about. There's a whole book on him. And he was known as somebody who worshiped God. And isn't that like something super cool to be known as? Like, hey, like, that guy worships God. I have a friend named Peanut who one day him and his wife were driving somewhere near their home. And all of a sudden this uh, car drove up right next to them. And it was full of uh, these gangbangers. And his wife happened to be driving, or I'm sorry, his wife was in the passenger seat. And they pulled up next to her and they started throwing eyes at her and started giving her these, uh, these looks of, that were not pleasant at all. Kind of like the H kind of stuff look. And so suddenly the wife is there and she looks to Peanut like, Hey, like these guys are hitting on me, like right in front of you. Like, like, what are you going to do? And Peanut, seeing four guys in a car, just looks and just felt led by the Holy Spirit to just roll down the window and say, hey, me and my wife? And he said their their faces at this point were just angry, like looking at him. And he was like, we worship Jesus. And all of a sudden, he said the countenance of all of them just went from being like a scowl to like, oh, hey, hey. And he doesn't even know why or how or what it was exactly besides the name of Jesus that just suddenly turned that situation around for him. And they drove off and that was it. And I saw there was power in the name of Jesus, but I also recognized that Peanut was led by the Spirit to say, hey, we worship Jesus. And they backed off. Because I was thinking, I was like, well, did you get out of the car and like have to like lose to four guys? <laughs> but no, there's power in the name of Jesus. And we should be known as men and women who worship God. Now, in verse 8, it says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed... And we baptized. So now there's this revival that's happening here in Corinth. Crispus, the, the leader, the Jewish leader of the synagogue now is converted. And then it, once they were converted, there's this revival breaking out. Then people start to get baptized. And that's that, that water baptism that we've seen. Where the person will, will go out. And they'll be dunked under the water. It's symbolic of, of death of the old life when you go under the water. And when you come back out, that's symbolic of the new life that Christ has given you. We had a, a baptism this past summer that was awesome. It was beautiful to see just God working in people's hearts. And it's something that is it's commanded by Christ that we do. It's not something that is, if you don't have it, that you're not saved. When I first became a Christian, the moment I accepted Christ into my heart, I was saved. And it was a year later after that, that I finally felt it was time that God had opened the door for me to, to go and get literally baptized in front of everyone. And that baptism, what it is, it's kind of like a wedding. It's a public declaration of an internal change. The same way that a man and a woman would get together on their wedding day publicly and say their vows before their family, before God. That's what a person is doing when they get baptized. They're saying publicly, I am owned. I am redeemed by Christ. So there's this revival that is now breaking out here in the church of Corinth. Remember that city that was plagued by idolatry and wickedness? The Holy Spirit is moving. Look at verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, if the Lord had to tell Paul, Do not be afraid. It's most likely that Paul was afraid. And so God had to remind him he had no reason to be. And he told and reminded Paul not to keep silent. You see, sometimes in fear, we will not preach, we will not teach because we're scared of making a mistake, we're scared of rejection. We're scared of harm. Jeremiah went through this. Jeremiah was a prophet who wrote the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah, after suffering much, being persecuted much, decided, you know what, I'm not going to speak in God's name anymore. I'm not going to even mention God's name anymore. And then he would write in his book, he would say, but the word of God was burning in my heart like a fire. And it was uh, bursting into my bones. It was just held in there so intensely that he could not keep it in anymore. So Jeremiah, he had that fire in him and he couldn't keep silent. You see, when you have that, that flame, that fire of the Holy Spirit in your heart, there's nothing that could contain it. When I was leaving uh, Calvary Chapel, golden Springs to to start this church to start this ministry, I got a- a, a call from Pastor Raul Reese uh, and he was like, "Hey, uh, I hear you're leaving." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah um." And he uh, he's like, oh, okay, like where are you gonna go? And I was like, well, I I want to start teaching a Bible study in my home. And he was like, oh, that's awesome, dude. And you know what? When you have that in you, he said, when you have that fire in you, there's nothing else you can do. And then he prayed with me, and it was it was really encouraging. And that's true when when the Holy Spirit puts that fire in you. Just let it go. When you see a move of the Spirit, jump in both feet. You see, Paul here was told by the Spirit not to be silent. And Paul was also told that no one would attack him. And that was in this instance where Paul would be kept safe because later on, the Spirit would tell Paul, when you go here, you're going to go in chains. You're going to suffer when Paul was first called by the Holy Spirit, by God, God told Ananias to go to Paul and tell him of the many things that he would suffer for Christ's name. So there is suffering as a Christian. Look at verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. You see, he's submissive to what God had told him to do. God told him to not be quiet. So what's he, what do we see him doing? He's teaching the word. He need, we need to be fully submissive to what God tells us, fully obedient. Because even partial obedience is still disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. We cannot delay and we cannot be partial in our obedience. We need to be fully, completely submitted to God. And then in verse 12, it says, When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So now there's this complaint. Now, the Jews again are hearing of the gospel that Jesus Christ is God. He's the way, the truth, the life, and they don't like this. The Jewish religion, many of them were opposed to now having this new doctrine and put in their life. You see, the Jewish leaders wanted to be the mediator between God and man, but that was now Jesus' role. So they bring Paul before the the judgment seat and they're now accusing him saying, look, Paul is telling people to worship God contrary to the law. It says in verse 14, and when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names on your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. So here, this proconsul, Gallio, is saying, Look, I'm I'm here as a representative of of Rome. I'm not going to get entangled in your debates of theology. He's saying this to the Jews. And he didn't want to be involved in such matters. He's seeing that there's now this these people fighting over this. I'm reminded as I read this of this idea of separation of church and state. You see, that metaphor was rooted early in American fears of government involvement in the church. It's actually... Originally, there was this founder of Rhode Island. His name was Roger Williams. And he was the first public official to use this metaphor. You see, he opined that an authentic Christian church would be possible only if there was a wall or hedge of separation between the wilderness of the world and the garden of the church. And he also believed that any government involvement in the church would corrupt the church. Now, a lot of times people confuse and think that separation of church and state is in the Bill of Rights. It's not literally in the Bill of Rights. The first clause in the Bill of Rights states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. But this original phrase came from Jefferson. Jefferson wrote this in a letter to these Baptists who were scared of the, the government intruding on their church. And he said, don't worry, there's gonna be, there is a separation of church and state, a wall between the state and the church. Which is true. When Newsom said that we shouldn't worship God, uh, we said no. There needs to be that separation. And now is not a time that we are to be in fear of, of man over God. In verse 16, and he drove them from the judgment seat. On a side note, this judgment seat. When you look up the original Greek for the word judgment seat, you get the word bima, the bima seat. I once had a, a Jewish scholar call me, uh, not directly. I was working for Somebody Loves You Radio. She wanted to call me to correct uh, a mistake that she believed that Pastor Rawl was making in saying the bima seat because she saw that as an error. She said and claimed that the, the bima was an altar, kind of like this stand that was used in, in Jewish ceremony, but it wasn't a seat. And then as I read this, and I've read this in times past, I realized, like, no, the the judgment seat is literally the bima seat. It's a literal seat. So it's good to know sometimes when you uh, study there's a, It's good to look at Greek, at Hebrew, and see what the original words mean. Um, There's all kinds of of, of books to help you do this. There's a website, blueletterbible.org. And it's great for if you guys ever want to have a really deep Bible study for yourself. Get on your own time. Blue Letter Bible. Search that. right? Google it. Look up a a passage of scripture that you want to really study. And as you're reading this scripture, look at the words that stand out to you. And on this website, you could click on that word and look at its meaning in the original Greek, in the original Hebrew, and see how deep and how important this language was. See, sometimes people... You'll hear that story, right, of like, well, the Bible, it's been translated so many times in so many different ways, and it's not reliable anymore. Um, They give you that idea of telephone, you know, The, the game we play, and it gets all the way around, and it gets muddied up, and you can't really understand it anymore. But that's not so with the Word of God. And the reason why I know this is because I study both Greek and Hebrew, and I've been going through this. And I see that this New King James Version of the Bible that I read has the same meaning, same context as the original Hebrew, the original Greek. So don't let someone try to fool you with that that idea. In verse 17, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. See, the Greeks and the the Jewish zealots, neither of them here are are Christian, but they're, they're fighting each other now. There's people who are taking this man, Sosthenes, who is the ruler of the synagogue, and they're beating him for bringing this kind of foolish case before the proconsul. And so Sosthenes got the short end of the stick on this debate. But what I also realized, though, is later on, Sosthenes would be converted. The second time he's mentioned is in First Corinthians, and it's as part of, of the salutation that Paul's letter gives to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, one, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. So Sosthenes is a brother in Christ and was either a voice in crafting the letters of 1 Corinthians or he was a scribe. And if this is, in fact, the same Sosthenes, then it would be more evidence of the transforming power of the gospel. At one point, he's opposing Paul and Paul's teachings But then when the emperor or the the proconsul said, hey, I don't want to hear about this dispute of religion, then all the Greeks said, beat that guy because he brought this dispute for no reason. So they beat him to a pulp. And then maybe it was at that point when he came to his senses and realized, you know what? God's real. He heard the preaching power of, of Christ through Paul and was converted. Now in verse 18, it says, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now, here we see again Paul with Priscilla and Aquila, this brotherhood, this fellowship, their their journeying on now to Antioch. And what we see is that he's taken a vow, that he cut off his hair, and we're like, what? Why? How? What is this? What does this have to do with? You see, there is something in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish culture called the Nazarite vow. It's actually in the Old Testament. And the Nazarite vow, what you would do is, for 30 days, they wouldn't shave their hair, They would just let it grow wild. There'd be no razor blades on themselves. And this was open not only for the priest, but this is open for just your average Jewish person, both men and women voluntarily so that they could serve the Lord. And it was during this 30 days that they would express their love for God and their gratitude practically. You see, they were to be separated unto the Lord where during this time, They would separate themselves from the world. They would even separate themselves from families at times. And they would even separate from from funerals or anything just worldly and unclean. And at that point, they would just let their hair grow. And at the end of that 30 days, when they were done with their fast, so to speak, they would then cut their hair finally And they would offer it in this fire as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering before the Lord. And I'm I'm remembering how important fasting is in our life. How vital it is to be discerning when the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding you to separate from social media, from Instagram, from... Excuse me on that from social media, from Instancy of the World, just trying to barge in right now, <laughs> from all these things. See, I just turned it off right now. <laughs> Separating yourself so that you could focus on God. Because God wants to speak to you. He wants to get your attention. God desires to have such an intimate fellowship and relationship with you and there's so many things that are trying to distract us from that. I remember there was a, a time when I was working at In-N-Out Burger. This was many years ago. I was taking my 10-minute lunch break. That's all they gave us for, our, for part-time workers. Enough time to get your burger or go to the restroom. You had a choice. And either way, I I love to be on my phone and looking on social media, Facebook, all these things. And one day I remember I went to get, get my phone out of my locker and then it wasn't there. I was like, oh, I knew I left my phone either in my car or at home and there wasn't enough time for me to go get my phone from my car. So I just sat back down and I was eating my burger and I was kind of sad. And then all of a sudden I realized like, wait, why am I sad that I can't check my Facebook? Like, something is not right with this picture. And at that point, I was like, that's it. Like, I deactivated my Facebook account. And I was off of, I didn't have an Instagram, so I was off of social media for six years. Six years, I completely was just done with it. I felt like I was free. And the reason why I I went back to social media was, uh, we started the, the Bible study here, and I wanted to be able to have an outlet to reach people. So I do see that Facebook and social media can be a tool used. So I had to activate accounts and things like that. But one thing I learned in that, that period of time was how we can be so easily distracted by the world. And it, when you separate yourself unto the Lord, you see that those things in life, they're not eternal. They're temporary. And what's important is those things that we do for Christ. You hear me say this often, because my pastors said it to me often. You only have one life and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. So we continue as Paul, he made this vow. Separated to the Lord. It says in verse 19, And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. You see, Paul, again, you see his fellowship with people. And we also see that when he says things, he says, God willing. You see, we make plans so many times in our life of where we're going to go do things, how we're going to do ministry, how we're going to get jobs and have family events and functions and all these things. But we need to recognize that God's in control. And God willing, if he desires you to do those things, he will let it be. And so Paul is with them and saying, look, I need to go back to my hometown to have this Jewish feast of Passover. I need to go back to celebrate, to remember what God did for the Israelites. Now, we know Paul would celebrate this Feast of Passover. We also know Christ, Jesus, celebrated this Feast of Passover. And part of celebrating the Feast of Passover meant you ate meat. So we recognize that these guys were meat eaters. That's what I love. I'm like, all right, gives me freedom to not have to worry about eating meat. I know there's a bunch of health reasons of going vegan, for sure. But not for uh, not a spiritual reason. No, no offense to any you vegans out there. In verse twenty-two, and when he had landed at Caesarea, and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia, and Phrygia, in order strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So now we have this introduction of this man named Apollos. It's a pretty cool name, right? Apollos was a learned man. He's an eloquent speaker, the Bible teaches. And he was proficient in teaching wisdom and this allegorical style who we believe his disciple was Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher living in Alexandria and a great intellectual teacher. That's Alexandria's in Egypt. Now, in Egypt, Alexandria, there was a library with half over half a million scrolls. It's a famous library. So this man, Apollos, was very wise and was put in a proper place in a proper time so that when the gospel came to him, he was able to use that wisdom But for the gospel. Later on, Paul would write about this man, Apollos. You see, what would end up happening is Paulus would become a leader in the church used mightily by God, so much so that some people would begin to say, oh, well, I, I follow the pastor Apollos. And then other people would say, well, I follow the teachings of Paul. And then they become divided in this. They're like, well, you know, Apollos taught us this. And the other people would be like, well, Paul taught us this. So, you know, our way is better. And then they'd be like, no, our way is better. And then they, they would start fighting over this. And then Paul would write later on, to the Corinthians and saying, what are you guys doing? And he would go on to say, look, I'm glad the only people that I baptized was Gaius. Because now you guys aren't so dedicated to me. He's like, when we divide the body of Christ, it's Jesus who's bleeding. It's not right that we would become divisive in church over these theological matters. We need to follow Christ. That's why when we hear of different sects of the Christianity, we have the Pentecostal church, right? They're my brothers and my sisters in the Lord. I don't bash on them and I don't go to a, a Pentecostal church and try to convert them over to, to Calvary Chapel doctrine, No. I don't go to a Baptist church and try to convince them to to change their ways like Calvary Chapel. No. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. And certain people, they need these certain churches so that they could feel closer to God. So don't go bashing on another church, another Christian church. So, This man, Apollos, it says in verse 26, So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You see, Apollos was teaching about the baptism of John but he needed to know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's important in our life. Not only water baptism, but to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is living in you and through you. So what I love of this power couple, they come alongside Apollo and they explain to him, they're saying, hey, like, We hear you teaching on the baptism of John. But do you know of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that he left the Holy Spirit for us? And they're giving him now this teaching that's more expedient, more fulfilled, more complete. And we recognize that Apollos was able to hear this correction. He was teachable and willing to learn. You see, we we need to be able to be teachable. No matter how much we study, no matter how much we we teach and we lead, we are to remain teachable. It's one of the qualifications of of a leader, of a minister, was to be teachable, willing to learn. And we also need to be able to receive correction. And when we give correction, we need to be able to correct with love. You see, when there's correction with love, people feel it. Sometimes that, that love is so empowering. When you realize that somebody is correcting you because they love you, when you see the source, you know they want what's best for you. You know they're not trying to hurt you. And Sometimes that love, it's, it's scary because we're not used to it. But we need to be open to that correction with love. And we also need to give correction with love. In verse 27, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. You see here now, Apollo, what I also recognize of him, he had this talent for debate. It says in the last verse, verse 28, that he vigorously refuted the Jews in this public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. You see, there's a time and a place to, to debate for truth for apologetics. Apologetics, if you don't know, that's the defense of the of the faith. Now, it doesn't mean we need to go to our family members and start preaching and debating with them. No, no, no. Right here, he's in this forum where they're debating on theology. He's not going to his family and trying to convince everyone there uh, suddenly of, this new religion that he's found. You know, we need to have discernment on when to give truth. We need to have discernment. And one of those biggest ways to discern how you're going to give truth is the way you live your life. See, people read your lifestyle more so than, than your words sometimes. If I in front of my family members I'm getting drunk and hammered at the parties the family get togethers and I'm mean and cursing at people and then on Sundays I'm here teaching the Bible what does that say about about the faith that I practice you see we need to be able to have a lifestyle that people recognize that we're different people recognize that we've been redeemed And then when God opens that door for you with wisdom, with discernment, lovingly tell people and show them, correct them of the true way. But we need to know our word. We need to know the word of God in order to do this. So that when somebody brings something our way and it doesn't sound right, that red flag goes up like, wait a second, that doesn't sound like the Bible that I read. So we see as Paul is going through Corinth, as he went through Corinth, He was teaching all these people, all these ministry truths along the way. Recently, uh, my mom was showing me this documentary of the Calvary Chapel movement that I've watched several times before. Uh, It was made probably in the early 90s. But what I want to do is I want to get together with you guys and show you this documentary About where this church started. You see, sometimes um, we don't look into where our origins came from. But I I, want to show you guys why we're doing things here the way we're doing things. This isn't, I didn't just kind of come up with this on my own, I was taught, I was discipled. But by who, and who gave them the authority, and what? Why does it, why do we do things the way we do things? These questions I, I I would love to answer for you guys. I could answer them in person if you ever have any questions. I would love to talk about it with you. But I also too want to show you some of the the men whom God used to to start this church. This is back in the the early hippie days, the 70s, the 80s. Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith. So. Uh, I love you guys. And I, I, w- I want you to know that the reason why we're, we're here is so you guys can learn and grow. This isn't just time to, to feel holy. But this is a, something that's supposed to change your life. This is something that's supposed to impact you on a day-to-day basis. This isn't heaven's insurance. This is your growth, your maturity as a, as a believer in the Lord. So we love you guys. We're praying for you. Uh, let's end this morning with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. I pray that you'd go before us, Lord God, in our life this week. Teach us your word, teach us your will. May we be submissive unto you, Lord God. I pray, Father, for those trials that are in our life, in our hearts, in our minds, that you would be sovereign over them, that you would work them out. May we trust you. We love you, Lord God. We praise you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand for one more song. As I say every week, I encourage you guys to use the name of Jesus in conversation with your friends, your family members. Bring his name up and see what God just does when you use his son's name.
1: Father, I adore you.
0: week. We love you guys. We'll see you uh, Wednesday night online and we'll be back here on Sunday morning.